Hello, I'm Dr. Brian Cole, and I'm your host for Sports Medicine Weekly. And I'm particularly excited about this episode where I'm going to talk about five evidence-based strategies to lose weight. And I think this is especially relevant as we transition now from the spring to the summer. But first, a word from our sponsors. Sports Medicine Weekly is the sports enthusiast's resource for fitness, nutrition, injury prevention, and treatment. The Sports Medicine Weekly podcast is sponsored by JRF Ortho. JRF Ortho partners with orthopedic surgeons to improve the quality of life of patients by enabling them to have an active life through the generous gift of cartilage and ligament transplantation. Please go to jrfortho.org to learn more or sign up to be a tissue donor at donatelife.net. Rush Physical Therapy. The therapists at Rush Physical Therapy are here for you. With more than 60 locations throughout greater Chicagoland, Rush's clinical experts will get you back to life. Go to RushPT.com today to schedule an appointment. Not sure if physical therapy is right for you? Request a complimentary consultation and discover the power of Rush Physical Therapy today. Karen Malkin and Karen Malkin's new Protein Brownie Bar and Superfood Bars, the best tasting bars on the market. Certified gluten-free, paleo, and no added sugar. Karen's Protein Brownie Bars and Superfood Bars, available on Amazon and at KarenMalkin.com. In the United States, the market size of the weight loss service industry is staggering. The revenues are almost $3 billion. So that should really come as no surprise considering this obesity epidemic that we have in this country. So look, on paper, losing weight should be simple, but you have to say burn more calories than you eat each day. But it's actually very difficult in practice. And I'm going to provide some strategies to do just this. Now, with summer right around the corner, it's actually very common for people to focus on shedding a few pounds. While many diets and fads have some merit, today we're going to talk about the five simple evidence-based weight loss strategies that can help you slim down before summer. Now, these are going to include tracking your diet and exercising daily, starting your day with protein, intermittent fasting, balancing your gut bacteria, and of course, you've heard it forever, reducing intakes of sugar and refined carbohydrates. So let's talk about the first one. That's tracking our diet and exercise daily. So um, this is an important one. In uh, 2020, more than 87 million people downloaded some app uh, that was related to health or fitness. And what evidence-based research has told us is that daily tracking of our physical activity, our food intake, our weight loss progress can be really effective for weight loss. It helps us monitor, provide some objectivity to this. There's several studies that have looked at this. So it was a systematic review and a meta-analysis that was in the Journal of Medical uh, uh, Internet Research. And there was a strong correlation between weight loss and the frequency of how we monitored our food intake and exercise. So if you'd like to test this theory for yourself, some of the most popular weight and exercise tracking apps uh, that I've seen include uh, MyFitnessPal, uh, Weight Watchers actually has a terrific one, Noom, Lose Fit, uh, excuse me, Lose It, uh, uh, Fitbit, and Healthy. Healthy is spelled H-E-L-H-E-A-L-T-H-I-E. So those are some of the ones that you can find online. And, you know, search them out for yourself. They're often very expensive. They may have a free version to get started. Um, and I, I, I can just basically 
tell you that some degree of objective tracking, uh, in addition to obviously exercising daily, uh, can make an enormous difference. And these tracking systems will monitor both the frequency and intensity of your exercise and what your intake is. And I think it's interesting, whenever you meet with a nutritionist, uh, the first thing they'll often say is, look, let's track what you've been doing. And it's it's a little bit arduous, uh, but the point is it actually provides a foundation for what we do moving forward and providing, as I say, some objectivity to this and, and tracking it in an algorithmic way can, can make an enormous difference and there's research to support that. So what about the, the, the second point after tracking your diet and exercising daily, and that's eating protein for breakfast. Now, protein has long been a secret weapon for bodybuilders and athletes and dieters. Uh, it is part of our recovery process, and it shows that protein uh, can affect our satiety. It can re regulate our appetites and actually make you feel full. Now, fat can do that as well, but uh Protein is a much is obviously a leaner substrate uh, that can do the exact same thing. Now, there's a, an abundance of data. There was a really interesting article in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that looked at the satiating effects, the ability to feel full of meals that have varying protein contents, and it uh, it investigated whether or not there was an effect on appetite regulating hormones and appetite ratings. And they they showed that protein can effectively regulate appetite hormones to help people basically just feel full. And that's primarily due to a decrease in the hunger hormone, which is ghrelin, which is G-H-R-E-L-I-N. So it's ghrelin. And it also has a rise in the satiety hormones that are certain peptides. And, you know, if you want to be fancy about this and get really uh, technical, that's called peptide YY, GLP-1, and cholecystokinin. So those three things have been shown to be upregulated when protein is uh, consumed. So... There is important research that supports that protein, especially in the morning, um, um, can actually improve and ultimately lead to reduced calorie intake throughout the day. You know, some of us say, well, look, I'm not that hungry in the morning. Let's just skip our breakfast. And there's another study that focused on uh, young adults who skip breakfast and found that the hormonal effects of eating a high-protein breakfast will actually last for hours. Uh, so just skipping breakfast is not a good idea. So uh, substituting that with a breakfast that's rich in dietary protein will provide additional benefits when we reduce uh, the, the appetite, the hunger effect, and also improve our energy intake. So the addition of a, a protein-rich breakfast rather than just getting rid of it might be a very effective strategy to, strategy to improve uh, appetite control. And the other thing is, not, not only does protein keep you satisfied and satiated, but it will also help you snack less throughout the day. There was a recent study that looked at female subjects, and it found that those who started their day by consuming 30 to 39 grams of protein, which is not a ton, uh, maybe it's one gram uh, uh, per, per, at least one gram per kilogram per day. So if you say 30 to 39 grams of protein, that's not a lot. And they ended up eating 175 fewer calories at lunchtime. Now, obviously, those who are trying to eat protein are also uh, conscientious about what they their intake. But the take-home is that protein will reduce uh, the hunger factor, and that's done through proteins that are produced and secreted in our bodies. So I think we all kind of know what those good choices are, but certainly good choices for a high-protein breakfast are eggs, oats, nuts, uh, uh, seed butters, protein muffins, oatmeal, low-fat low cottage cheese and whole-grain breakfast wraps, things like that. So if you're on the run, there's there's obviously if it's something you can't do at home, there's a lot of these these options that are available, you know, through, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, a fast food environment. But most of this we'd love to be able to do at home, and it's pretty simple to do, and it's economical. Okay, so 
besides eating protein for breakfast and tracking our diets through one of these apps and the obvious exercise and daily, there's uh, the, the, uh, there's also the concept of intermittent fasting. And we, we had a previous episode on intermittent fasting, and it's currently very popular. Uh, and there's a lot of science that supports it. It's basically a patterned approach to eating. And it makes sense scientifically and intuitively because the food we eat is actually broken down by enzymes in our gut. And eventually it ends up as molecules in our, in our bloodstream. So carbohydrates, for example, are, are quickly broken down into sugars, which our cells use for energy. But if our cells don't use it all, it's stored as fat. So sugar can really only enter our cells with the use of insulin. That's a hormone made, made as you know, in the pancreas. And insulin will bring sugar into the fat cells and keep it there. So during a fast, insulin levels go down and our fat cells can then release their stored sugar to be used as energy. So we lose weight if we let our insulin levels go down. And uh, so the concept behind intermittent fasting is that the fast allows a reduction in our insulin levels and it goes down enough uh, for long enough that we actually burn off fat. Now there are several excellent evidence-based benefits of intermittent fasting. Uh, intermittent fasting can help you eat fewer calories while boosting your metabolism. It's really a very effective tool to lose weight and visceral fat. And visceral fat is the fat that's around our organs. And that in both men and women has been shown to be associated with cardiovascular risk. So visceral fat is really important. It may not be something that you see, but it is something you can measure. There's the DEXA scans and other uh, body uh, fat assessment uh, devices that can actually measure visceral fat. Uh, and it, that is genetically, the amount of visceral fat may be somewhat genetically determined, but it is clearly associated with cardiovascular risk. So intermittent fasting has been shown to reduce that. Studies also show that intermittent fasting can reduce oxidative damage and inflammation of the body. And that's, that's benefits that will uh, uh, be uh, strike against aging and even uh, cancer. So there's a number of diseases that are um, due to oxidative breakdown of, in our body, uh, the promotion and creation of what we call free radicals. And intermittent fasting has been shown to reduce that. So there's a lot of different types of intermittent fasting. Some of them get quite complicated, but the two most popular are the 16 and 8 and 5 and 2 methods. In the 16 and 8 approach, people will actually fast for 16 hours a day and consume all of their calories during that time excuse me, during the remaining eight hours. So they'll fast for 16 hours and then they will use the additional eight hours to consume all their calories. And when you think about how you sleep and how you function, that's actually not that difficult. Now there is a 5-2 method and that include, includes eating what you want uh, for five days each week and then significantly limiting your calories in the remaining two days. I actually find that one much more difficult. The one that I've done in the past has been the 16-8, which is again, uh, fast for 16 hours and then consume all your food in the remaining eight. And that method of intermittent fasting, even if without calorie restricted but eating responsibly, has been shown to uh, uh, to lead to weight loss, calorie reduction, improvements in metabolism, and improvements in uh, insulin uh, control. So as I mentioned, go back to one of our previous episodes in our podcast library where I lay this out uh, in much more detail about intermittent fasting. Um, so it's it's not that difficult, and I and I think you got to pick what's right for you, whether it's the sixteen eight approach or the five to two approach. But both of these achieve the same goal of improving our metabolism, improving our insulin control, which is really important. So besides that, the the, the next uh, the next one that's really important is is balancing our gut bacteria, and this is particularly important. Karen Malkin has talked to us about this uh, on several episodes, and the gut microbiome is uh, emerging as an area of inter interest that focuses really on the role of bacteria on weight management. 
And, you know, that adage that you are what you eat is actually much more accurate than ever because it, when you consider your diet, it's, it's really the foundation for what our, our microbiome is, biome is in our gut. And it has a direct effect on our weight, uh, disease processes, and even our mood. Now, the human microbiome, um, or what otherwise is called the gut ecosystem, has more than 100 trillion microorganisms. And some of these are good for our bodies, and some of these are actually unhealthy. And this assists in a number of human processes, and not just the obvious ones. So there's a, as more extensive clinical trials are conducted, and there's a lot of innovative research, the, there's an intric, intricate connection between our gut, our performance, and diseases. And that's becoming much more apparent, and uh, the data is actually transitioning into something we can uh, actually act upon. Now, diet will have a direct impact on the quality of our gut microbiome. And that can affect our metabolic processes and our overall health. And when it's an unhealthy gut microbiome, that's been associated with irritable bowel syndrome, skin disorders such as acne, uh, type 2 diabetes. This is a big one. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this when we talk about carbohydrates. But type 2 diabetes is, has become an epidemic in the early 1980s. We basically, you know, we didn't even see it. Uh, it has had a, uh, our, our microbiome and our gut has a direct impact on cardiovascular disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and even obesity. So... Each individual has really different varieties and amounts of bacteria in our gut, and some types can actually increase the amount of energy that uh, individuals will harvest from food and uh, can actually lead to fat deposition and weight gain. So how do you create this? So to create and maintain a healthy microbiome, individuals are encouraged to eat a nutrient-dense, low-trans, saturated fat, probiotic-rich diet and exercise regularly. Now, there are probiotics that you can get as supplements, nutritional supplements uh, over the counter that are particularly useful as well. And now there are foods that will increase good gut bacteria. So this is just part of your natural diet. And that's, you know, that's the, the stuff that you, you always hear about. So these are fiber-dense fruits, vegetables, grains, fermented foods, yogurts, and so forth, and probiotics that you can get naturally like kefir, yogurt, and, and even sauerkraut, amazingly. Not something I like, but if you do, that's something that has an abundance of probiotics. So balancing our gut bacteria is, a, is an easy thing to do. It's part of just a healthy diet. Uh, you, it's going to happen naturally when you um, sort of indulge in, in probiotic-rich uh, foods, as I've mentioned. Uh, so that's something you can do, I think, in a very simple, predictable way uh, without really changing what you do each and every day. So now probably the most important, but yet one of the most challenging ones that we're all familiar with, and I learned about this when I read a book years ago called The Abs Diet. And that's reducing our sugar intake and our refined carbohydrate intake. And, you know, if you think about it, eating a bagel or a piece of bread is really no different than eating a candy bar. So that's the first thing to think about. And we think about not eating candy because it has simple carbohydrates and they're refined that our body just, it's a disaster for our, for our metabolism. So this is a strategy that no one really wants to hear about again, but certainly cutting carbs and sugars is, has an abundance of science that shows that weight loss depends on limiting our intake of sugars and refined carbohydrates. And unfortunately, you know, if you think back to when, you know, the, every, every couple of years there's a new uh, uh, fad, let's eliminate fat, let's increase fat, let's eliminate sugar, let's increase sugar. You know, there were years ago, uh, we started seeing an abundance of these low-fat food products on the shelves. And if you, if you shop the, the inter, internal uh, geography of a grocery store, it's basically just full of food with, redu with sugars and, uh, and uh, 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 processed carbs and um, refined carbs. And 
it's hard to get out and get away from. And so we've had this, we've had this emergence of foods that are low fat, but they have, uh, refined carbohydrates and very carbohydrate dense. And so all of this added sugar has been definitively linked to obesity and the onset of type two diabetes. So if weight loss is your goal and just good health is your goal, it's really imperative to reduce the intake of refined carbohydrates. And, these are heavily processed foods. They're not hard to find. They're on the, the, the internals of the grocery stores are just replete with these. And these are processed foods that no longer actually contain fiber and other nutrients. So some will say, look, uh, you know, let's, if you eat an apple, there's a lot of sugar there, but the, the difference is it's not just simple, uh, uh, refined sugar, it's unprocessed and you're eating it at the same time as you're getting fiber. So healthy carbohydrates actually have fiber. So this is like, you know, uh, you want, these are the things you want to eliminate that don't have fiber, but are carbohydrate dense are things like white rice, bread, and pastas. So those are the things that are the obvious ones that we want to, if you can't eliminate, at least reduce it. So, um, Science shows that these foods are very quick to digest. They convert to glucose rapidly, and that's why you may see endurance athletes, you know, may have a bit of this, you know, uh, pre in training. But that's a, that's an exception. So when when excess glucose, when these glucose dense foods uh, such as rice, breads, and pastas enter the blood, it goes back to that that the basics where you create insulin, and this is what I was talking to you about in uh, intermittent fasting. So insulin will promote fat storage, and it contributes to weight gain, and not just the visible fat, but again, it, it contributes to visceral fat development. Now, conventional science has attributed weight gain to a net surplus of calories um, due to burning fewer calories uh, than, t than, than what we take in. And there was a really interesting study in 2021 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that looked at a carbohydrate insulin model, and it focused on diet quality versus total calorie intake for weight loss. And the model actually postulates that the intake of processed carbohydrates leads to changes in the levels of insulin and results in increased fat deposition. And then the other problem is that you know, there's no evidence, there's no uh, ability for satiety to feel full because this just leads to hunger, increased hunger, and that just leads to more consumption of more calorie-rich foods, and that's been directly associated with obesity. So, the model suggests, you know, as I've been talking about, to avoid processed carbohydrates, starchy foods uh, may be actually necessary to to, to to reduce these starchy foods to lose weight instead of actually just restricting calories. So, calorie restriction is one strategy, but if you do it responsibly by minimizing carbohydrate sugar intake and the intake of refined uh, carbohydrates, it can have an enormous difference. So um, in conclusion, anyone who has really struggled with weight loss will tell you there's really no quick fix. And in addition, there's a lot of evidence now that uh, I've just discussed with you and the importance of getting regular exercise, and that can't be overstated. And that's the subject of a number of episodes in our, in our uh, podcast library. But combining this exercise with a healthy diet is probably the most effective. You can't really do it with one or the other. And uh, calorie restriction just doesn't do it. It's a frustrating process. It's likely to fail. You can't do it uh, over extended periods of time because it just gets increasingly difficult. So while exercise will increase our metabolism and help maintain our lean body mass, that will actually uh, help uh, increase the number of calories that we burn each day. It sort of turns our body into a furnace. But our body is sort of the most effective furnace uh, when we're lean. And to, to achieve that leanness, it's not just uh, uh, trying to uh, accrete uh, muscle mass, but 
um, uh, it also in, it involves these strategies that I've outlined. But when it comes to exercise, you know, the basic parameters, and again, I've discussed this in a previous episode, are to get some form of aerobic exercise at least three times a week for a minimum of 20 minutes per session. So to keep it simple, if it's three times a week minimum, 20 minutes per session, per session and then obviously you're never, you know, even if it's 15 minutes, it's still positive. It's, it's, it's working in the positive direction. And that in and of itself helps to turn our bodies into a furnace. And adding some type of resistance training for another 20 minutes can have a huge impact. So if you think about these evidence-based strategies, I've, I've outlined a number of these. Um, so in addition to this 20 minutes a day, uh, three times a week of aerobic exercise, uh, getting adequate sleep, reducing stress, eating a balanced, nutrient-dense diet, uh, improving our health. That's what's going to help all of us achieve our goals as we transition now from this, this just never-ending spring into summer. So I, I, I wish you great success in this. Uh, it just in summary, I think a, a, a data tracking software uh, entity that you can find online, eating protein for breakfast, uh, try out the intermittent fasting. It's not that difficult to do to balance our insulin levels. Uh, balancing our gut bacteria, all the, the good nutritious foods that you consume will help you do that. And finally, and you've heard it forever, reducing our sugar and refined carbohydrates. That can have enormous impact on insulin control. So I wish you luck and thank you for listening to another episode of Sports Medicine Weekly. I'm Brian Cole and I've been your host. And please tune into our other episodes in our podcast library. If you enjoyed today's episode, please find us on social media, including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit us at sportsmedicineweekly.com. Remember, all net proceeds go to support research at Rush University Medical Center and the Department of Orthopedics. The Sports Medicine Weekly podcast is sponsored by Vericell. Vericell develops, manufactures, and markets autologous cell-based therapies for patients with serious diseases and conditions. For more information about their products, visit www.vcell.com. That's V-C-E-L.com. Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. To be your best, you start with best practices. Eat better, grow stronger, reach higher. At Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, their work is what best practices are built upon. They're a team of leading physicians with the highest level of experience and training, prolific researchers delivering pioneering breakthroughs, orthopedic experts that other orthopedic specialists and their patients come to when they need individualized care. Get it done right the first time at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Visit RushOrtho.com slash the best to learn more.